As you may know, season four of this podcast is all about responding to your questions, your interests. And lately, I have been asked a lot about my parenting philosophy, which honestly I think is rich because I really don't know what the hell I'm doing most of the time. In fact, I immediately distrust anyone who pretends to have it figured out. They're usually the ones who are an eyelash distance away from a full-on nervous breakdown. And I used to believe things like, you know, a troubled teenager was the result of bad or absentee parenting. And now I know better. I have known families that were doing an incredible job of raising children, and I've seen them experience trauma and tragedy. And I know now that while I could do everything right and follow all the right rules, sometimes life just has other plans. So I don't want you to think that this episode is me tooting my horn or showing that I've got like this ironclad insurance policy against something terrible happen or my kids doing something crazy. It's not. It's just my attempt to welcome you into my world and see how we're doing it over here. That's all. Nothing more and nothing less. So this episode is my attempt to offer parents of all stripes. This is not just a mothering conversation. Three things. One, the core beliefs that have been essential to me as a parent, because all behavior flows from beliefs. So if we want to behave in ways we're proud of, we need to make sure we're operating with beliefs that we can be proud of too. Number two, I'll offer the systems and habits that have paid massive dividends to our family, because as James Clear says, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And lastly, number three, I'm going to share with you my fails, the what I wish I'd knowns, the things I'd love to impart to young parents coming up so they don't have to make the same bad boneheaded mistakes I made. So how does that sound? Okay, let's dive in. Before I start walking through my three things here, I feel like I need to put my parenting into context. I was born in 1974, and I tell you this because the parenting was decidedly free range in those days. There wasn't a hell of a lot of supervision going on. And I often joke that I feel like I was raised by wolves because compared to how our generation raises children... We were basically living through Lord of the Flies back in the day. I mean, one of my earliest memories as a little kid was riding around in my parents' car, sitting in the front seat on the armrest, on their bench seat in the front seat. I was four, right? There were no seatbelts. There was no car seats. There were no regulations. It was just groovy moms in their macrame and groovy dads in their Sansabelt slacks living their best groovy lives. And we just hung on for dear life. And contrast that with how we raise our kids now. We parent hard. And let me just acknowledge that parenting hard is its own kind of privilege. I fully recognize that not all parents are afforded this privilege because circumstances and neighborhood and school district and socioeconomic income. It's a privilege not afforded. It wasn't even afforded to my mother who raised me mostly on her own and worked full time to support us. But, you know, this is a podcast about my experience and I'm speaking to my experience. But just know I mean no disrespect for anyone listening who is not able to parent hard because they don't have a choice. So anyway, I had to get that said. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Growing up the way I grew up, I knew I wanted to parent more slash better than the generations before me. But I also knew that the extreme sport of hover parenting that I was seeing wasn't really all that appealing either. It still isn't. Part of what made me the fierce creature that I am today was the hands-offness of my parents. 
it was the feeling of being mostly on my own for big decisions in my life. And that feeling of being on my own and having full responsibility for my choices gave me agency. It gave me hunger. It made me ambitious and it made me risk tolerant. That informs a lot of the balance I'm trying to strike as a mom, as a parent. So I just wanted to put this conversation into that context. We all bring context and that is mine. But to begin, at the core of my parenting lies a few beliefs. Belief number one, I am not the owner of my children. I am a steward. I'm not the queen. I am a regent. I have always believed that my job is to love them unconditionally and do my best to keep them fed, clothed, and safe. And those things mean different things at different ages. But ultimately, my children belong to themselves. They are not an extension of me. They are not even a reflection of me. They are in a dialogue and dance with themselves and whatever divine love pulses through this world. And this belief is profoundly different from the belief that I was raised with. Like, 180 degrees different. I remember on my wedding day, I was all dressed up and ready. My bridesmaids were gathered around me and I was in this room with my mom and my grandmother and all my bridesmaids. And we left the room to walk down to the limo that was going to take us to the church. And as we're in the hallway, my best friend Naomi and I were singing Don't Stop Believing" by Journey at the top of our lungs. And my mom stopped me and she pulled me aside and she's like, Bronwyn, brides are supposed to be demure. And I cut her off right there. And I said, mom, listen, clearly you do not know who I am. (laughs) Because later that night, y'all, during the reception, my best friend Naomi and I surprised my groom and my guests by passing out. Actually, I think her, her now husband, Jeremiah, did this, but we passed out plastic Bic lighters out to the very confused crowd in the reception. And we had them light the lighters and hold them up because for those of you who were young, before there were iPhones at concerts, you held up lighters during the ballads, okay? Or during the power songs, right? So we passed out lighters and Naomi and I joined the band and sang Don't Stop Believing," And it was glorious. And in that moment when my mom was telling me to be demure, she couldn't see me because all she could see was an extension of herself. and her discomfort with this wild, loud, totally not demure bride that was her daughter. And I remember that moment feeling really frustrated and sad about it. Like there was something kind of shameful and embarrassing about the kind of bride that I was, but I just wasn't having it. So I put an end to it. But to end that story, guess who was the most vocal supporter of my most undemure bridal moment with her Bic lighter up in the air? It was my mom. So, you know, it all works itself out. But the reason I tell you that story is like, I feel like the generation before us, especially for daughters, we were an extension of our mothers. And I never wanted my kids to bear that kind of burden. I just didn't. So I try vigorously, if not always successfully, to let my children tell me who they are, not the other way around. That's big. That is a big belief that informs my parenting. And Sal's the same, really. Belief number two for us is that a happy, joyful mom is better than a pinched, resentful mom. I remember as a kid, my best friend Colleen and I used to talk about mean moms. You know, the ones who would pull up to school with that like perpetual scowl on their faces. 
the ones that you had to be extra quiet around tiptoeing because you weren't sure what might set them off. Colleen and I would marvel at how our classmates could possibly deal with such mean moms because both Colleen and I had moms who were mostly pretty happy. Our moms could not have been more different from one another. Colleen's mom was married with four kids, lived in a big, beautiful house. My mom was a single mom with just me and we lived in a condo. But both moms, both women smiled when we walked into the room. Both women laughed easily, truly spectacular senses of humor. Neither woman was exactly a PTA kind of gal. Neither was particularly good at cooking or volunteering or the traditional stuff we consider motherish. But both Margaret and Barbara were fun to be around. And they made us feel like we were enough, always. So when I got the chance to be a mother, I realized quickly why those mean moms were so mean. It was layers and layers of resentment and unexpressed rage. Clearly, there was something in those women's backstories that spoke of unfulfilled needs, unrealized dreams, or simply an inability to ask for help. And I knew that if I wanted to give my kids the gift of warmth and laughter that my mom gave me, I would need to become very good at saying no to what made me resentful and yes to what made me feel joy. And that didn't always go well. I unapologetically have been going away with my two best friends on little getaway weekends twice a year for 15 years. No, 20 years. My mother, ironically, would always ask me, are you sure you should be doing this? Don't you think you should be with your kids, especially when they were younger? And I would always say, yeah, I'm sure that this is a good idea to go away and leave my kids because I'm with my kids 80% of my waking life. Okay. But it was also my mother who once brought me up short for freaking out that my kid accidentally missed a practice of some sport or another. She said, Bronwyn, we have children so we can enjoy them. Stop turning this into such a problem. In other words, she was trying to tell me, relax. The point is the love. The point is the journey. The point is not to get everyone where they need to be 100% of the time, perfectly on time. But here's what I know. If I had listened to the shoulds of conventional wisdom around what mothers are and are not entitled to, I would be a mean mom. There's no doubt in my mind. And whenever I'm feeling guilty or nervous about advocating for my own needs or saying no to something that I don't want to do, or whenever I find myself trapped in the walled garden of scheduling panic, I remember this belief. The happier I am, the better my parenting. Which leads me to belief number three. My job is to raise resilient kids who trust themselves. One of the greatest gifts I was given as a parent was the gift of Mulberry School in Los Gatos, California. Mulberry relies heavily on, or it did back in the day when we were there, it relied heavily on parent participation at the preschool level. And it required a certain amount of actual training in the mode of parenting known as positive parenting. That training that I took, that I was forced to take in order to be at Mulberry School, that training to this day has made me a better parent. I'm not a big yeller. I don't shame my kids. There's no slamming of doors. What there are, are choices and consequences. There are conversations, there is listening, but there is no yelling. And one of the core concepts to positive parenting is that if your child can do something for themselves... They should do something for themselves. And I think part of where that comes from is that half the time as parents, we're so riled up and tightly wrapped and so poised to scream 
because we are exhausted. We are doing too much. There's a bunch of shit that those kids can handle themselves. Like, in fact, just now I was freaking cleaning up the kitchen because I'm recording this late at night. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like, I need to remember my positive parenting and be like, children, you can empty the dishwasher. You must empty the dishwasher. So I am still reaping the benefits of that. So as part of that system of thinking, that belief that our job is to raise resilient, strong kids who have self-trust is built on the core of if they can do something for themselves, they ought to. So we've raised our kids to take responsibility for their needs and their desires. My kids started making their lunches supervised in the first grade. We stopped ordering for them at restaurants as soon as they could articulate an order and say please and thank you. We encourage them to talk to their teachers and coaches directly whenever possible without us. Making strong eye contact while speaking with adults is a skill we started teaching them in preschool. Taking responsibility for age-appropriate stuff not only makes them more resourceful, it allows them to collect data firsthand on what decisions have good outcomes and what decisions blow up in their faces, which is really the only way we learn to build self-trust in this lifetime. Following other people's advice may be helpful, but it doesn't build self-trust. Like confidence, self-trust has to be earned. So we try and let our kids earn it, especially when the stakes are low and there's not massive consequences, right? Like I believe in letting kids fall flat on their faces if the consequence to falling flat on their faces isn't like death or pregnancy or something crazy, right? Like we got to let them wipe out when the stakes are low. In fact, it's kind of funny, this philosophy of kind of giving them enough room to make mistakes and be okay with them making mistakes. It reminds me of when I was in my early 20s and I was, I was dating this surgeon and obviously he was much older than me. He invited me to join him on a trip to Hawaii where he was speaking at a conference and I knew my parents wouldn't have liked this. And of course, that thrilled me to no end. So when I called my dad to tell him about my plans, I was very surprised when he said, honey, you are one of the smartest young people I know. If you think it's a good idea to go on this trip to Hawaii with him, then have a great time. I trust you completely. And I hung up the phone and I stared at the wall for a few minutes. In my heart of hearts, I didn't want to go to Hawaii. I didn't want to face whatever expectations of me he had during those days. And because my father had forced me to look inside myself instead of getting a reaction out of him, I was able to politely decline the invitation and I returned my ticket to the good surgeon. And I really admire and respect the way my dad handled that moment. And it became an incredible moment of trust building that I think about to this day. Those are the three core beliefs that guide my parenting. That's my holy trinity of beliefs that live underneath my parenting on a good day. I should say every single thing you hear in this episode where I'm like talking about all these high-minded, amazing things I do, we should just put at the end hashtag on a good day because on a bad day, I mean, shit, we're all human. God forbid you see me on a bad day, right? That's everybody. Now that we've talked about sort of the concepts, let me just share with you the habits and systems that we have as a family, because that's where rubber meets road. So here are the most important, impactful systems we've created in our family. System number one, we have a family mission statement. 
And as lame and as corny as that sounds, the exercise of creating a family mission statement was really interesting and fun, at least for Sal and I. I'm sure the kids would say different. The catalyst for us to create one was that we'd heard kind of some murmurings that one of our chickens was kind of popping off and behaving badly at school. And before we got into the specifics of that behavior and correcting it, we were like, you know what? It's time we actually sit down as a tribe and lay claim to the values we hold dear. So we gathered up our kiddos around the table, grabbed some Expo markers, put out a giant post-it note on the wall, and we started to brainstorm. What makes a Sally and Benny a Sally and Benny? What are we about? And all of us put in our two cents and created a list of attributes. And I don't remember who contributed what. But in the end, we settled on about 10 or so things that made us us. Things like excellence grounded in humility, speaking up for what we believe in, constant learning, pushing ourselves to see things from new angles. We want to have fun and feel gratitude. We are people who value effort over outcome. And we want to develop and explore the gifts God has given each of us, the talents we've been given. We want to make a difference in the world. And we are people who don't give up easily. And this exercise may sound kind of hashtag basic, but when shit goes sideways, we're able to go back to that list and say, hey, child, we love you unconditionally. And also in this particular moment, you weren't able to live out our value of blah, blah, blah. What happened and how do we make it right? So that number one system of a family mission statement becomes this touchstone, this touch point, this, this sort of educational underpinning that we can just keep going back to without having to explain ourselves too much, which leads me actually to system number two, which I call rupture and repair. Listen, kids make mistakes. Sal and I make mistakes. We're human and humans are a mess. And as such, Sal and I have worked very hard to create a system for dealing with, you know, breaches to the family mission statement. When one of our kids or one of us screws up, we don't deal with that screw up when we're feeling angry or outraged. We cool down first. We parse through what is our emotional reaction to something in our own past and make sure that that thing isn't clouding our view of the present. And once we are cooled down and we can think clearly, Sal and I make a plan together. And then we talk to our child with love and directness and clarity. We use the feedback sandwich model, right? Start with the positive, deliver the negative and the effect that it has had on other people and then end with another positive. And we don't leave the conversation until there is a plan for making the situation right. That's the repair part. And to the extent possible, the child or whomever made the error is in charge of making it right. I remember a long time ago, someone told me, All God asks is that you make a choice and you pay for it. There's no drama. There's no shame. There's just cause and effect, choice and consequence. And while that may sound harsh, I've actually always found it incredibly reassuring. If I screw up, I need to make it right. And then I can go about my life knowing that I'm still loved. This is in massive contrast to the old school way of shaming a kid for something they've done long after the apology has been given. But it goes the other way too. There have been times when I have screwed up or Sal has screwed up and we've had to speak to the kids and say, I don't like how I handled that and I'm really sorry and here's what I'm going to do to make it better. We all live by that. And this system, like the family mission statement, may sound hashtag basic, but it is key, especially as the kids get into their teenage years. There has to be a framework for helping them with their very bad decisions because that is literally 
the business that teenagers are in. They're in the business of making stupid decisions because that is how they learn. And if we don't have a system in place for dealing with those bad decisions with equanimity and clarity and love, it's going to blow up in our faces. And full disclosure here, guys, I was a nightmare as a teenager. I was a train wreck. I was basically two people at school. I got good grades. I was on student council. I sparkled. I was incredibly happy at school. But at home, I was miserable and I was toxic and narcissistic and angry. I was so angry for all kinds of reasons that I won't go into here. But there were no systems in my family for repairing what was ruptured. There was only simmering resentment that eventually exploded into volcanic tears and shouting. And as a teenager, I was very gifted at delivering volcanic tears and shouting, as you can imagine. It was a terrible way to experience high school. It created a ton of terrible communication habits and expectations of how relationships are supposed to play out that took me years to undo. And I knew I didn't want that for my kids. I wanted them to have a clear understanding of what we expected from them, the values, and the support they could expect to get from us when they screwed up. And I wanted them to know that when the inevitable screw-ups happened, Sal and I have their backs but we also expect them to take responsibility and repair what's broken. Our system is far from perfect, but it exists. And that is something I think all children deserve. And in case you're like, wait, what was the system again? (laughs) Let me just recap. The system of repair and rupture works like this. First, you calm down and separate what is your history from what is happening in the present, because the two are always connected. The more worked up emotionally you are about a screw up of someone's, the more likely it is that you've got backstory with that screw up in your own curriculum vitae. So first, calm down and separate what is the past from the present. Second, make a plan to provide direct, compassionate feedback using that sandwich model, positive, negative, positive. And third, we brainstorm with the kid to fix what has been broken, to repair what has been ruptured. Notice I use the word brainstorm. It's got to be collaborative. If it's just some big grown-up barking orders, it doesn't have the same effect. Fourth, once the situation has been addressed and resolved, we stop any kind of emotional punishment. There's no more shame, no more mange around it. You do the crime, you pay the time, and then you get back to living. So that's system number two. System number three, presence in the mundane. One of the great realizations I've had as a parent is that connection really happens in the mundane moments, not the grand gestures. Let me give you an example. Every night after I finish doing the dishes and getting the kitchen under control, the dog and I walk over to my oldest daughter's room and say goodnight, and we both give her a snuggle. Then we move upstairs and visit my middle daughter, and we give her a snuggle. And I usually practice the guitar solo to Patience by Guns N' Roses on her guitar because it's right by her bed. And this drives her crazy and also cracks her up. And it has become part of my goodnight ritual before I snuggle her and say goodnight. And then the dog and I move into the last bit, which is I brush my teeth, climb into bed, dog lays down beside me, and my littlest guy comes crashing in and snuggles up beside me. And eventually I kick him out and I say goodnight. This happens almost every night. And on Christmas Eve this year, I was at home separated from everyone with my son because he had COVID. And my husband was with the girls at his mom's big Christmas Eve gathering. And during dinner, Sal asked my daughters who were complaining about something I had said or done. And he said, what do you guys appreciate the most about mom? I don't remember what each of them said, but I do remember this detail. My middle baby girl apparently said, 
I love how she says goodnight to me every night. It makes me feel good and like the day is complete. This fills my heart and it validates my theory. It's not the birthday parties or vacations or material things that our kids most appreciate. It's the love and it's the attention and presence we bring to the boring, the mundane, the everyday. When they know they can count on us, it fills their tanks. And when I'm rushing around resenting all the daily bullshit I got to do around here, it is incredibly helpful to remember that the daily bullshit is where so much love and connection happens. It's where life happens. And this helps me stop being so anxious and pressed. It reminds me of what my mom said. We have children so we can enjoy them, right? And speaking of enjoying our children, here's system number four, special time. I don't remember where this idea came from, but since the kids were preschool age, I've always carved out one-on-one time with them. Each child has their own preferences about how we spend that special time, but the expectation is that each kid gets a little mini outing with me once a month. My oldest loves to go to lunch, do a little shopping or run errands, and so do I. My middle daughter loves to get iced coffee and wander through a bookstore. She loves to curl up on the couch with me to watch a good documentary, and so do I. My littlest guy loves to go to the Lego store and get a new Lego set with the saved up money, and so do I. These little outings are a break in the sibling dynamics and allow each kid to unfurl a little bit with their mom. Sometimes we cover really important things during those outings, and sometimes we don't. The talking actually isn't the point. It's the being together, doing something that makes them feel good that matters. It's like a date night, but with each kid. And it has been powerful. It's a powerful way to keep myself on the blessing side of their mom ledgers and not on the curse side. So you might want to fold that into your life if that sounds appealing. It's been such an incredible source of joy to us. But system number five, listen, don't solve. This one is hard and it's probably the system I'm the least good at executing. When the kids come with one problem or another, my instinct is to bring to bear my 47 years of extensive experience in earth school and offer my opinion, my solution, my read of the situation. And rarely is that what the kid is after in that moment. What they're usually after is the process of articulating the problem as we see it. By the time that problem comes to me, it's often the first time they've said it out loud. They're trying to work through their own solution a lot of times. And when I come in like a wrecking ball, I destroy the potential for them to work something out, to grow, to develop the part of the brain that is in charge of executive function and forward thinking. So when they lay some kind of drama or problem at my feet, I stop and I try and take a breath and I repeat this mantra. Right now, my job is to listen and empathize. Right now, my job is to listen and empathize. And once my kid has said all they need to say, Then I ask, let me know if you'd like any advice in the situation, but I trust that you usually know what to do. Just know that I'm here. This is what I try to do on a good day, which leads me to the final stretch here, the fails. I mean, Jesus, there's probably hundreds of fails, but these are the biggies for me. And fail number one is social media and screen time. I blame COVID for this. We had a pretty decent grip on screen time thing when our kids were pre-COVID. They had specific set amounts of time during the day when screens were permitted. Otherwise, they had to find something else to do. And our children didn't get their own phones until they graduate eighth grade. That was our rule. And prior to that, prior to getting that phone in eighth grade, there's a family phone that gets used by everybody. But then COVID hit. 
And any screen time rules we had just went right out the window. We were so desperate to ease the pain of the total disconnection they had from their friends that we allowed a lot of screen time. And that decision was completely understandable given the givens, but it is one I really, really regret because it's led to, I don't know, an opacity, meaning I don't feel like I have a good grip on what my teenagers are up to on social media. I know they're above the line accounts. There are accounts that I can see, but all teenagers at this point have secret hidden accounts. It's a thing. I know they have them. They know I know they have them. And if you have a teenager and you're listening to this, I will bet you a hundred doll hairs that they have them too. And they've assured me that they're simply for smaller groups of friends to connect on really random specific things and post really specific things. But honestly, guys, I'm taking their word for it. I have to trust that they're doing what they say they're doing. Because in order for me to get total transparency, I'm going to have to violate that digital space, which I may need to do at some point. I'm just not there yet. And I don't have any answers for this, you guys. I don't know exactly what to do. But it's an honest regret I have. It's a real blind spot. That's the first fail. Fail number two, not being more present to their baby stage. I became a lot better at this with each child that showed up, but I really did not take the time to slow down and just watch my babies do what babies do. I just remember sitting with them thinking, oh my God, there's so much I need to do and I can't because this tiny person may die at any moment. And also this is so boring and I don't know what I'm doing. When I think back on that, I feel so much regret. My middle baby girl, the one that loves documentaries, chose a documentary series called Babies, which is about all these just incredible discoveries they've made recently about just how intelligent babies truly are, just how much is going on developmentally in those first few years. And my daughter and I were just both amazed and dazzled by it. And I felt physical pain in my chest watching it, just thinking how much wasted time I had with my babies when I was thinking about what I need to do next with work or about the house. Instead of just watching the way their baby fingers reached out for objects and the way they watched my face and other human faces to learn about human emotion, I was just too lost in my career and my shifting identity from woman to mother. I just wasn't present enough. And I really, really regret it. Let's hope somebody gives me some grandchildren at some point so I can redeem myself, (laughs) but not too soon. I mean, let's be real here. Anyway, fail number three, persistent guilt. Connected to fail number one is the fact that like most working mothers, I feel guilty hanging out with my children because I'm not working. And when I'm working, I feel guilty for not being with my children. This is something I'm getting better at the older I get. But what I wish I had known sooner was that the solution to this guilt is boundaries. Time spent with kids is time spent with kids. And it is time that cannot be reclaimed. Once it's gone, it's gone. There is a time for being a mother and there's a time for being a worker. Conversely, time spent working is time invested in myself, in my career, in my dreams. It is time spent developing the talents God gave me and contributing to the world. And it is worthy of my full unapologetic attention. It is time that cannot be reclaimed. There is a time for being a worker and a time for being a mother. And if I could go back, I would whisper the following into my own ear holes. When you're with the kids, be with the kids. You can never catch up on work. When you're at work, be at work. You will never spend enough time with the kids to feel like you have fully met your mother obligation because it's impossible to feel that way. And those are my fails. 
And, you know, look, we've talked about beliefs, talked about systems, we've talked about fails. I mean, I kind of thought it might be interesting to just show you how all this manifests in a real life. And, and th- this, is, this is my day, right? This is what my day looked like today. Today is Saturday. And I wrote this in bits throughout the day so I could capture what it's like to really be in my skin in this parenting role. And here's what I wrote. Today is Saturday. It is a Saturday in which I find myself driving around San Jose doing double duty because Sal has COVID. (laughs) I'm zooming around town listening to Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel on Audible, and I'm blown away by her ideas about love and intimacy and marriage. I arrive at a subway, the sandwich, not the transportation system, and wait while they make 20 sandwiches for the performers at a play at Children's Musical Theater as part of my volunteer hours I'm logging for my son's show. While I'm waiting for these 20 sandwiches, I am working on this very script on my laptop, which sits on a wobbly table at the subway. And as soon as I'm done with this podcast episode, I will take a first pass at writing my husband's grandmother's obituary. She died at 106. And as the resident writer in the tribe, I'm taking a first pass at it. And from here, I'll deliver the sandwiches. I'll drive my son to basketball, my daughter to volleyball, and eventually my oldest daughter to her performance of Mamma Mia at her high school. Each ride will have its own energy signature, conversational cadence. Once everyone has been delivered to their various ports of call, I will crawl into bed and sleep for an hour, regaining my composure and sense of humor and patience before beginning the evening's activities, which include watching my oldest perform on stage. I anticipate weeping, watching her, and feeling the pride of seeing my child develop her talents. This is how parenting is for me. It's overwhelming. It's rich. It's boring. It's wild. It's satisfying. It's infuriating. It's kaleidoscopic. Just the slightest shift and a whole new set of colors, emotions, and actions emerge. And I wish we could carry this kaleidoscope metaphor into all of our conversations about parenting because it's never one way or the other. There is no black and white. Everything is changing. Everything shifts. Everything's in flux. But what I know for sure is the beliefs create the reality, the systems create the experience, and the fails keep us humble. We're drawn to kaleidoscopes not because they're predictable, but because of the limitless combinations of color they offer. And my friend, my hope for all of us is that we hold the kaleidoscopes of our children's lives gently and with awe and wonder as often as we can. That we forgive ourselves for the occasional scratch on the lens and that we acknowledge that we are all trying our very, very best. And the only thing that matters in the end is love. Full stop. Thank you, as always, for being with me today. Shine on. We need your light. Hey, if you're still with me and you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest episodes delivered hot off the press. And feel free to share this with someone who could use a little inspiration. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe. And on Monday mornings, you will receive a communication tip to work with for the week. And on Saturday mornings, you'll receive a short little email with three things I am listening to or reading or digging right now. Also find me on my new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash this is Bronwyn, B-R-O-N-W-Y-N where I drop new content every Thursday covering strategies for getting more confident during moments of conflict. And speaking of conflict, if you're dealing with a tough client or work situation, 
and you need better skills for managing difficult conversations, check out my new online course called the No Enemy Client Conversation. And that is noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com. That's noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com. As always, you can find me on Instagram at bronwynsf, where I offer a lot of behind the scenes insights into how I make all this content and run my business for those coaches and solopreneurs who need a little inspo. And lastly, if your company or organization needs a high voltage keynote speaker, who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I'm your gal. Shoot me a note. Let's make some magic happen. That's Bronwyn at BronwynCommunications.com. Take care and shine on.